Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning uh, to see uh, you and to be with you. Just as a way of announcement, um, I have several announcements this morning. I'll try to make it all the way through. Let me pull my announcements up. If not, I'll get lost and we'll be here all day. Uh, These flowers are from Barry um, Barrett's funeral yesterday. Um, They came and uh, celebrated his life yesterday. So that's where these flowers are from. Also, if anyone's interested in going to the BCM banquet Thursday, October 21st, that's this Thursday at 630, uh, please see Miss, El- <coughs> excuse me, Miss Ellen, <coughs> uh, Miss Eleanor. Uh, it will be held at uh, Northside Baptist Church. That's this Thursday at 630. That's the BCM. That's the Baptist Collegiate Ministries. Um, that's our uh, arm here at the Southern Baptist to reach college students on the campus of MTSU. So please uh, if you are interested to, to go and to see and hear what God is doing, go and see uh, Miss Eleanor after the service. Uh, two more quick announcements. Uh, at the door of the office are the budget request forms for the 2022 year. Uh, please find that. Fill those out if you're a chairman or on a, on a, on a committee. Uh, you need uh, to ask for money for next year's budget. budget. Those requests are in the back. Uh, by the office. Please fill those out. Those are actually due this afternoon. Um, Jonathan doesn't know this, but we'll uh, make an extension if you need those. Uh, Just see me or Jonathan let him know uh, you need a few extra days to get those in, Um, but those are due this afternoon. Last but not least, on Saturday, uh, this Saturday from between four and six, we'll have a uh, trunk or treat in the parking lot with a uh, chili cook-off. So if you'd be interested in providing candy there's a bucket to my right to your left um, uh, and as you go will be to your right also there's a sign-up sheet um, we could use your uh, trunks for the kids to have treats in so that's also in the back Uh, let's take a moment to pray then we'll jump into this uh, book the book of Esther Uh, would you pray with me this morning God, we're grateful to gather into your house this morning to come and to hear from you, from your word. Your word has been given to us by you. It's infallible, it's inerrant, it's inspired by you. And so I pray that your word would do what only your word can do, and that would bring transformation to our lives. If we're here and we know you as our Lord and Savior this morning, I pray that it would bring sanctification, that we would become more like you, Jesus, as we read and study your word. If there's anyone here that does not know you this morning, today would be the day of their justification, the day that you would show to them and reveal to them that you died for them and that their sins separate you from them and them from you, and yet your son Jesus is the one that bridges the gap for them. I pray that will be true for anyone here this morning. All of us would not come and leave the same this morning. We'd be transformed by your word, the preaching, the teaching of your word. God, now we come, and as we've been doing for the last several months, we come and say to you, God, we ask that you would provide us a youth pastor, one that has a desire to to know you and to make you known amongst middle and high school students. Um, Be preparing that person for us and us for that person. As we begin now this uh, to put together a search team to go and find that person. Yet again, God, we do say if there's someone here uh, that has a desire for youth, that has not come forward to make that known, I pray that they would have the courage, the boldness, 
and respond in obedience to your call in their life to do that. And now, God, we come and say again, have your way through your word in our lives. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. As Jared said, we'll be starting a new series. This will be about a nine-week series. Uh, we'll probably pause in there to uh, go into, uh, I know it's going to sound crazy, uh, we're going to get to uh, this season of Christmas before we finish this uh, book. So wrap your mind around that for just a moment. We're almost uh, at the Advent seri- season. The Advent season is where we come and celebrate uh, and with great expectation the return of our King, King Jesus. And so that will happen at the very end of November. So we will probably not make it through this whole book unless I hit fast forward and combine some uh, chapters, um, though it does not look that way. But here we are in the book of Esther. The book of Esther is an amazing book. Though when I was studying this week, I did read a commentary that said this. This lady, a very brilliant scholar, she said this, the book of Esther ought not to be taught from a pulpit. And I was like, oh, that's great to uh, read right out of the gates. I wanted to close that commentary and uh, pack it up, but I did not. We're going to walk through this book. Esther is only one of two books in all the Bible of the 66 books or letters that God gave us that are named after a woman, the other being Ruth. Many believe this is the last book or one of the last books that was written in the Old Testament. Where this book takes place it is um, right after the temple had been rebuilt and right before the walls, if you remember our series in Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. So we're in the middle of that. The temple was rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem are going to be rebuilt. And this is, book is all about the exiles, where the people of God have been taken into exile, into a foreign land. And remember, throughout the Old Testament, God is wanting to push his people back to the place of worship. The place of worship for them was Jerusalem to the temple where they could experience and be in the presence of God. That happened at the temple. So the people of God in this time period are away from the presence of God. And yet we're going to see how God moves and orchestrates his divine will, his divine power to to achieve his divine plan. We're not sure who wrote the book of Esther. Many scholars believe, as we'll read on, uh, it's her cousin. Esther is a woman uh, that gets brought into the court of the king Uh, to really set this plan in motion that God's people would be set free. But many people believe that it was Mordecai. We'll read about Mordecai in a few weeks. Mordecai was the cousin that intervened and spoke to Esther to kind of share the plan of God with her, but we're not quite sure if that is who wrote it. For the first seven centuries uh, of the, the, after Christ had came, the first seven centuries, wrap your mind around this, there's no Christian commentary that was written on the book of Esther. No one decided or thought, hey, might, it might be a good idea to write some commentary. What does A commentary is just simply, what does the book mean, and what is the purpose that God would give us this book? So seven centuries go by, and not one book is written on it. I believe this would be the case. There's only two books in all the Bible, that would be this book and the Song of Solomon, that you will find no mention of God in the book. 
God's name is not written. There's no prayer to God. It would seem as if, and I'm going to get there at the end of today's message, that God is absent in the book of Esther. So think about that. Of all the books in the Bible, only two, the other being Song of Solomon, which is really a love letter between uh, two lovers that show us the love that God has for us and that we ought to have for God, the other being Esther. No mention of God. So I'm going to cover that at the end of this morning's message. But I want to look at this passage of Scripture here in Esther chapter 1. I'm going to try to make this uh, sermon, it's a very R-rated sermon. I'm going to try to make it a PG to PG-13. If you read it, and we were to read it for exactly how the writer wrote it, it is a very, very scandalous way to start off the book of Esther. So let's look at We're going to look at one person. There's really three primary people that this first chapter covers. Those three primary people are the king, the queen, and the wise men. But this morning, I'm only going to cover the king and the queen in light of what we see in this text. It says this in the very first verse of Esther. Now, in the days of Harasharus, that's how you actually say it. Um, I don't know. His real name is Xerxes. If you've ever heard of King Xerxes, that is who this, uh, this man is. This man is about 30 to 35 years old. His father was King Darius. Darius you can read about in uh, the other books of the Old Testament, in Daniel, in Nehemiah, in Ezra. You can read about his father. His father was a powerful, powerful man that begins to move over the known world and take many, many countries by storm and captured their countries. And this was all handed over to King Xerxes. He was tall and beautiful, history tells us. There's other history books outside of God's word, I don't know if you know this, that were written in this time period. And in this time period, the the history writers tell us he was more handsome than any other man that ever lived at this time period. That in this time period, he was as if he was King Solomon. He was handsome. Everyone longed to be with him. Not only was he handsome, but he was rich. We'll see that in the text. I don't know if you've ever been to someone's house, but if you read in the verse, it's in these verses, it says this. He had couch, couches, that's plural, made of what? Gold. Now think about that for a moment. All throughout his palace were these couches made of gold. That means he had nothing better to do with gold other than make couches. That's how much in abundance he had of gold. He was a rich, rich man. It said this in chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. He was king from India to Ethiopia, over 120 providences. That would be th- 3 million square miles that he reigned supreme over. That's all of the known world at this time. They had not discovered other parts of the world. So he was the king or the ruler of the whole known world. There was no other king above him. He was, as they would say, the king of kings. 
He was all-powerful. It was roughly the size of the United States. And then he had this group of soldiers known as the, as the immortals. Now think about that. We have the Navy SEALs, and they're bad, but they're not immortal. So he had this group of soldiers always around him that nobody could ever defeat. He was a rich and powerful man. If they were to do a show today on MTV, or as maybe you remember, I'll show you how old I am. There used to be a TV show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Anyone remember that show? I do. That's how old I am. When I thought of that as an illustration, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, that's going to age me quite a bit. He would have appeared on that show. And he wouldn't have just appeared as like the first episode. He would have been the guy at the very end of all the episodes. This is the granddaddy of them all, the richest of the rich. He didn't just have one palace. He had two palaces filled with gold couches, one in the north and one in the south. We would call them a a winter home and a summer home. And he'd go between the two. That is how rich and powerful this man is. And now let's look at what he was doing. Remember, he was given the name King of Kings. It would said this about King Xerxes, that you could not come into his throne room and walk in front of him without bowing. If you walked in front of him without bowing at his throne, you would be put to death. It was also said that you couldn't even stand on the carpet in front of the throne without bowing. He was that powerful. And it says this. It says that in those days, he sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and the servants, the army of Persia, the media, and the nobles, the governors, the providences were before him. And he showed all the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days. And so here we see where this book starts is in the throne room of King Xerxes with all of his power on display, with all of his riches on display, and he's throwing a party. And so at this party, he's bringing all the officials of all the providence, all the military power. Anybody that was anybody was at this party. How come? Because he wanted to display to them his power and his reign that he would be the king of kings. Now, this was like no party you and I have ever been to. This was the best of the best, the best food. It says later on, it was the best wine. It says that you could see all that was in his palace. All the gold, all the silver, all the purple linens. Think of it this. Think he had purple linens hanging on silver rods. Purple was the most expensive fabric you could buy. It showed people how wealthy you were. And it says he was so wealthy that he hung these purple curtains on all the windows on silver rods. Like Everywhere you would look in his palace, you would see just how wealthy he was. He would make Bill Gates look tremendously poor. But it says this, he threw this party, this epic party, the best food, 
the, the, the best entertainment, the best wine, the best of it, the best. But not just for one day. Not just for one weekend. Not just for one month. But look how many days this party went on for. It said he showed them his power, his riches, his royal glory, his splendor for how long? 180 days. That's six months. Anybody in here ever signed up for a six-month party? That sounds awesome. But when you begin to look at what this party was all about, it was a party of wickedness. But for six months, he's throwing this epic party. Six months of the the royals, the, the military power, the providence, the governors, everyone in the city, anyone that was anyone was at this party for six months getting totally trashed, it says. A six-month drunk fest. It would make Bonnaroo look ridiculous. But that's the party that was going on in this day. But then look what it says. It says basically that he didn't get enough praise. He didn't get enough glory. He didn't get enough honor. And it says in verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the capital, both great and small, a feast lasting seven days. So after six months of this party, after six months of these people giving him praise, he sat back on his royal throne and says, that's simply not enough. I need more praise. I need more adoration. I need more glory to all this. And so then he gives out a decree for anyone that's in the city, great or small, poor or rich, for the whole city to come in and give him more honor and praise and glory. I wonder what the size of that man's ego was. We're about to see what happens to his ego. He puts all of this on display. So here's this 35-year-old man throwing this epic party, invites the whole city so that, they, that he would get all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. And then it says this. They were drinking out of gold vessels, vessels of different kinds, of the royal rind, was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and the drinking was according to his edict. There was no compulsion, meaning you could have as much as you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's all on the king. So here's this drunk fest that's happening with the rich, the poor, the servants, the high officials. And then the king gave this order. For the king had given orders to all the staff in his palace to do as every man desired. Verse 9 says this. The queen was also giving a great feast for the women in the palace. So here's these two parties going on for six months. The queen giving her party for all the women the king giving the party to all the men. And then it says this. When it wasn't enough, when his ego wasn't full enough, when he hadn't had enough praise, enough adoration, he then says this, on the seventh day, when his heart of the king was merry or drunk with wine, 
he commanded his eunuchs, seven men that served in the presence of the king, to bring the king before to bring the queen before the king in a royal crown. Now this is where it gets scandalous. Many have debated on verse 11. Now here's this drunk king with these drunk men in another room. And this drunk king gives this order to bring the crown in her royal crown. That's all. Think about how shaming that would be. So the king wants to put his wife on display in front of all these drunk men. How shameful that must have been. Could you imagine as a woman, I am not a woman, I'm a man, but I could not imagine if your husband said to you as, his, as your wife, hey, I want you to come to this drunk party wearing nothing but your crown. He wanted to put her beauty on display for all these drunk people because he hadn't got enough adoration. Here's what we know about sin. Sin has no limits. Ego has no limits. Adoration has no limits. To be adored has no limits. We'll go to whatever cost we can to achieve that high of adoration. Six months plus a week, all these people in his throne room were giving him all this worship. And at the end of it, he said, that's not enough. I need more. And I know what, I, what will get me more is to have my wife come in here to be on display for all these other men. Then those men will be jealous of what I have. They'll want what I want, what I have. They'll become even more envious of me than they already are. And history tells us this was not his only wife. He had many wives he could have done this with. But he wanted to do it to the queen. Put her in a place of humiliation. And I don't know, many scholars debate this part. Now here we see the queen. Really just one verse about her. But the queen refused to come to the king's command. She said, not on my watch. I'm not doing that. Now you got to remember, though she was the queen, she was summoned by the king. When the king summons you, you don't tell the king no. Doesn't matter who you are in the kingdom. There's no one higher than the king. She did what was noble. She did what was right. She did what was healthy and says, I am not doing that. Now, it cost her something. Her no cost her something. Her no that day cost her of her crown. On the passage, it says later on that the king, it says he was so furious at her. He burned with anger. And he said to his wise men, what shall we do about what this queen has done? Because if this gets out, then all the women of the city are going to go on a tear to become powerful. We can't have that happen. And he made this decree that the queen ought never to see the king again, that she ought to be thrown out of the royal court 
forever. You see, her no cost her something. And then on in the passage, it says this. In verse chapter 2, we're going to read that, I guess when he sobered up, he came to his senses and he regretted the decree that he sent out. But the decree that he sent out was, hey, no woman ought to talk back to any man. It's basically what he said. And we get to the end of chapter 1. And there's this decree of this wicked, drunk king that has said out loud, hey, women have no rights. Men have all the rights. And we're all powerful. And it begs the question, where is God in all this? Where is God? Where is God in chapter 1? Like if we just studied that in, in the Lord's prayer that God is a good God, where is God? And that may be where you're at this morning in your life. Like all this chaos is happening around you. And God is allowing these things to happen. And you may be sitting here this morning. Where is God in all this? You see, that's the reason we study Esther. Because we want to answer that question. And we want God's word to answer that question for us this morning. You may be sitting here asking yourself that question. Where is God? You know, the Israelites must have been asking that question when they were in exile. Where is God? We've been robbed of our land. We've been robbed of our nationality. We've been robbed of even worshiping God. Where is He? Now, I don't know everyone's story in here, but I know a lot of stories in here. And I know enough stories in this room today that if we're honest with ourselves, even today, we're asking that question, where is God in my pain? Where is God in the cancer? Where is God in the death? Where is God in the mental illness? Where is God? Well, the book of Esther tells us that. The book of Esther, the primary theme of the book of Esther is this. The providence of God. Now, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, what is the providence of God? The providence of God is simply this. It means that God both sees into the future. So we have a God who's providential in all things. He sees into the future. Do we believe that first this morning? That we serve a God that he is outside of time. He sees all of it. There's not one moment of one day in all of history that has escaped the mind and the eyes of the Lord. He sees all things at all times. He sees in the past. He sees now in the, the, the present. And he sees into the future. Nothing has escaped the eyes of the Lord. Now that's one thing. That's one thing to have a God that sits on his throne. He can see into the past. 
He sees the future. He sees into the future and he sees the present. That's one kind of God. We don't just have that kind of God. That's the foreknowledge of God. But see, the providence of God is way different than the foreknowledge of God. If all that we have is the foreknowledge, that God has foreknowledge, but we don't have the providence of God, we're in deep trouble. Because here's what providence says. Not only does God see into the future, but God is currently acting for us into the future. See, the providence of God was back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Like, it wasn't like God didn't know what was going to happen in the garden. It wasn't like God put Adam and Eve in the garden and thought, oh man, what's going to happen? What are these two people I just created going to do? He saw into the future. He saw that Eve would take of the fruit and eat of it. He saw that Adam would stand by and do nothing about it. God saw that. But in seeing that, he was actively doing something else. Tells us in Genesis chapter 3. That God, before Adam and Eve ever sinned, was going to provide a great sacrifice for their sin. It was not that at that moment Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate it, that God had to come up with plan B. No, God always and only has a plan A. See, that's the providence of God. That God would see into the future and act on behalf of his people because he cares for them. Here's how we know this to be true. Here's how we know when we don't feel as if God is present, he is present to our every need. God is never distant and never far off. The promise that Jesus gave us when he returned to the Father in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, was this. All authority in heaven and earth I've given to you. Go therefore and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And here is the promise that God knows the future and acts in the future. Behold, I will always be with you to the end of the age. God is with us in this moment. God will be with us tomorrow. God will be with us six years from now. That is a promise from Jesus himself. Paul says it this way. Here's how we know and can trust that God is a God of providence. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. So the promise is true. That though we do not see God. God is at work today. We see that here in the book of Esther. Where we would not say that God is present. God is very much present at the party. God is allowing these men and these women to get drunk. God is allowing the king to want all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. God is allowing the king to call in the queen to come before him and to put her into shame. How come? Because God knew that the king would, the king would call her, the queen would say no, and she'd be kicked out of the kingdom. And then chapter 2 happens. 
chapter 2 says, because the king had lost the queen, he now had to go look for another queen. God is at work. Even when we don't see him, even when we don't hear him, God is at work because he wants to what? Always deliver his people. You see, if this king did not have a party, he did not invite the queen before him drunk, and she had not have said no, we'd have no chapter two. There would be no Esther in the story. The king would not have needed to invite Esther, the Jewish beautiful young girl, into the royal palace. And the rest we'll see is God placing Esther right where God wanted Esther to be so that God could use her to deliver his people. So we go back to the promises of God. I don't know what you're going through. I know some of it. And I know for some of you, it doesn't feel as if God is present. But I guarantee this, God knows all things. God is present in all things. And God is active in all things. Your cancer, your divorce, your mental illness, anything and everything that you are going through, God sees it, God is present, and God is active for his good and for his glory and for your good and for your deliverance. I don't know how God's going to do that. But we know from the promises of Isaiah, God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. They are higher than the heavens. But do we believe that this morning? Which will point us back to, do you believe in the providence of God? Again, God sees all things. God's in all things. And God is active in all things. Even when he doesn't appear to be. That is what we see just in the first chapter of Esther. Let us believe that to be true, church. I know our church is in a lot of pain in a lot of different places. If we had time this morning, we had this mic open, you could come up and talk about the pain that you're going through. But I want to stamp this promise on top of all that pain. God sees, God knows, and God is active. For his good and his glory and for your good and for your deliverance. May we rest in that this morning, church. Let us pray.